and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am editor-in-chief of UkraineWorld.org. Ukraine has celebrated the 30th anniversary of its independence last week. How is this independence perceived outside of Ukraine and what is more importantly inside Ukraine? My guest today is Peter Pomerantsev, a famous author, book writer and expert, director of Arena Think Tank. Peter recently directed a research Ukraine at 30 from independence to interdependence, what unites Ukrainians and what divides Ukrainians after 30 years of independence. Hello, Peter. Hello. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. So uh, let's talk about Ukraine's independence that we celebrated a few days ago. And you as a person who knows Ukraine very, very well, but at the same time, a person who lives outside Ukraine and looks at Ukraine from the global perspective. What do you, do you think that uh, Ukrainian independence, what does it mean for Europe? For Europe? That's a great question. What does it mean for Europe? Well, uh, I suppose it means that Europe has to sort of, uh, you know, think about its meaning a lot more. Um, you know, Ukraine is fighting and in, and in that sense is also sort of trying to define what being European means. And and that's a very contested, contested set of ideas at the moment. You know, you have Orban and Hungary saying, I'm the true Europe, you know, that... Being European has nothing to do with democracy uh, or or pluralism. It's got to do with some sort of um, religious ethno-nationalism. And then you have other versions of Europe being thrown about. So, so I suppose the idea of Europe is being is in crisis at the moment. Um, not an unhealthy crisis, but a crisis. And then Ukraine, you know, becomes another point of tension... Um, and and creativity in thinking about what Europe means um, geographically and philosophically and um, and and uh, and economically, I think as well. I remember when Ukraine got its independence, there was a famous book by Andrew Wilson, Ukraine, Unexpected Nation. So do you think that Ukraine, after the 30s, 30 years of its independence, is still a kind of a unknown, unrecognized, unexpected nation for Europeans, for Americans, for other nations of the world? Yes, very much so. I think I think it's changing, obviously, with the war. The war has... Uh, sort of the sort of brute fact of geopolitics, um, of course, makes people aware that it is it is uh, a subject in its own right and not merely a sort of a product of changes beyond it. Um, but um, so I think that is I think that's changing. I think that's changing. It's very interesting watching the European uh, football championships recently. Um, where you saw a new set of kind of cliches um, being associated with the Ukrainian football team because of the war. So, you know, because I think you know, I remember Ukraine came back really late against Sweden, I think. And that was sort of, I remember the British commentator saying, well, given everything that's going on in Ukraine, the way the country's fighting for its survival, you know, it really reflects its character on the football field, which, which I expect was nonsense. But it's interesting how... You know, a few years ago, it wouldn't have been that that sequence of 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 ideas wouldn't have been there. So you see a sort of a, a kind of a space, an imaginary space, being created, which is which is deeply connected to, to the war of Russia. 
Um, I have to say that the, 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 the football commentators couldn't bring themselves to say what exactly was happening in Ukrainian politics. They couldn't say the war with Russia because that would have, I suppose, I don't know why. It would be interesting to say why they couldn't say that, but they kind of intimated that we should all know that they're fighting Russia. Um, but it's so very, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, usually in Ukraine we tend to politicize sports and look at sports event with this political context. Because even if we look back at the Soviet times, like the matches between the games between Dynamo Kiev and Spartak Moscow was a kind of clandestine politics, you know. And it's interesting, like Br British commentators uh, are also using these political metaphors. It's it's really surprising. But let me ask. I remember in your very interesting preface to, to the book uh, Ukrainian Histories and Stories that uh, I was happy to edit, you kind of uh, draw the differences between the Ukrainian political culture, Ukrainian um, kind of uh, experience, political experience, and for example that of the central uh, European states like Poland, Hungary, uh, Czech Republic and others. And On, this, on the other hand, with the Western European states. So do you think that Ukrainian political experience of the recent years, however chaotic it might seem, uh, presents really something something new, something different, some, something unique? Y yes, Adam, and, and, but, but then again, um, I'm... Actually, the, the, metaf the sort of the parallels that always spring to mind for me, and again, they're not full, they're inaccurate, But the closest ones are with the British Isles, with Ireland and Scotland and its relationship to England. Um, again, not an, not an ideal parallel at all, but I think closer than many others. Uh, especially Ireland, definitely a country that was a colony, subjugated, <laughs> driven into famine by the English. But were also there were ways for Irish elites to be part of the empire and part of the system as well, if they wanted to be. And so this kind of schizophrenia always existed in Scotland is even stronger. Uh, and always a very strong Irish independence movement. Uh, and also some, you know, very tough choices to make when England has a war. So, so, so I think Ireland is, quite, is, is, is not the worst parallel, actually, to make. Um, also in that, in that way that Ireland always gave so much of British culture, and especially its imaginative side, same as Ukraine has created so much of what people think of as Russian culture, um, especially its imaginative side. So, so I mean, I, I think a lot of, I think that that's in a way a more useful par parallel than Hungary or Poland. Um, and also you could, you could say that, you know, Donbass is Northern Ireland. I don't know, you could go on and on. Uh, like these things, you know, being a part of the British, um, British Isles, And, and that sort of the United Kingdom is, 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 I would hazard to say, incomparably better than being a part of a neighbor of the Russian Empire. Um, so, so the parallels are, the parallels are not ideal, but I, I think maybe some similarities there. But, but yes, I mean, in Ukraine, in a, in a way, Ukraine is, you know, unlike Central European states in their current mono-ethnic expression, which is the result of genocide and mass murder and expulsion. Ukraine is more like a the central European country of the Kunderan imagination, 
you know, of this, this, this much more, if you want to find the ideal Central Europe, go to Uzhgorod. That is the idealized lost Central Europe of many different languages, uh, many different religions, everyone multilingual, all communicating with each other. That's the lost Vilnius um, of, of before, before the war that, uh, uh, um, that, that, um, uh, the various writers describe, and it's, I suppose, the Poland of, you know, uh, I don't know, what the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth. I don't know. Y- Ukraine captures within it, it, within it, sort of a, a, a myth of the ideal European and Central European cosmopolitanism that. The, 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 that you find more in literature and in the imagination than in reality. So you could say Ukraine is the ur-European country. It's, it's that which Europe wants to be, this country of um, coherence. It's a coherent country, but also which has this incredible pluralism built into it. I mean, where everybody is bilingual. That's the, that's the, that's, that's the, that's the aim of Europe, to have, to have this multilingual you know, uh, body politic, and Ukraine already is that. That's very interesting what you what you this parallel with Kundera because uh, my criticism of Kundera is that he actually drew the line between this imagined Central Europe, which he uh, considered as a kidnapped West, his famous formula, uh, the maximum diversity on minimum space, but he drew the clear line on let's say. Uh, you know, Hungarian Soviet border or Czechoslovak Soviet border. And uh, what is happening now, I think it's a confirmation of the fact that this idea of Europe is coming more and more to the East. But what you are saying is is even more interesting, uh, as you say, that <laughs> this multiculturalism is existing right now precisely in Ukraine. I, I want to remind our, our listeners that uh, your father is coming also from uh, Chernovitz, and which is a, a famous multicultural city, Jewish, German, Romanian, Ukrainian, uh, whatever. And it's also very interesting how Ukraine is trying to integrate this Chernovitz, um, also Chernovitz identity or Chernovitz culture with the publishing house Meridian Chernovitz, by the way, that that your father is also inspirating. Uh, let me come to uh, to the report that you uh, directed recently, uh, which is called Ukraine and 30 from Independence to Interdependence. Uh, I was also happy to be a, a part of the team, but uh, the crucial one, let me just name the authors, Peter Pomerantsev, then Yaroslava Barbieri, Oksana Lemishka, Denis Kobzin, Maria Montagu, Natalia Humenyuk, Angelina Karyakina. So, uh, from independence to interdependence, what did you mean by this title and uh, what what is interesting in this report? Well, I mean... <sighs> Yeah, the report, to make it, the report found that Ukrainians are far more united around a lot of the issues that it is sometimes one thinks divides people. So sort of the sort of propaganda and political divides, let's say around, I don't know, the, the Orange Revolution, yeah? Which still divide people. We've done polling a year ago and found that that's still a very divisive issues. If you do it as a kind of whose side were you on? Were you with the orange guys or with the white and blue guys? 
But if you actually ask people about voting rights, about the need to protest and fight for them, pretty much everyone agrees that that's important. Um, and we can go on and on. You know, um, the, there's underlying values that, that unite people. There's underlying experiences, overcoming hardship and resilience, um, which unite people. So there's a lot more commonalities than the kind of traditionally very polarized propaganda discourse would make you think. So lots of reasons for hope. Um, also, also, I think even more important than that, a kind of a behavior which is very tolerant. Um, a kind of, I don't know, a sort of, a sort of casual, maybe slightly lazy tolerance that permeates everything, um, which I think comes from having this sort of very, very mixed and plural society. People are very accepting of others. So, so all that is great. And I think much cause of celebration and, and needs to be kind of surfaced much more in, in mass media, especially. Um, what, what we found was, was lacking and what I think is worrying is, is this idea of interdependence between different parts of the country. So the classic or a classic, you know, way of understanding a state is as an imagined community, which is a Benedict Anderson term. Uh, but what that means is that people on one side of the country feel themselves connected to people on the other side that they've never met. Yeah. Uh, you don't know, um, uh, a fruit seller in Vinita has never met a coal miner, a coal miner in, in Mariupol or whatever. Uh, but they imagine themselves to be one part of one organism. They need each other. They're interdependent. Um, and that's what he means by imagined community. Yeah. Even though we've never met, we feel and we sense that we're part of one thing. Now, that was often very weak in Ukraine. So when we asked, why do you need another region or why do different bits of the country need each other? Um, people said, well, they don't. Um, we can all live separately. Or you had a pseudo myth like, you know, the Donbass one, like, you know, we Donbass feeds the whole of Ukraine, which is kind of a, a pseudo myth that has fallen apart. So, so that's worrying because a strong state depends on that. Um, but that can be worked on, firstly, um, in many sorts of ways. Um, I think, firstly, you need to show through media the interdependence and why it exists. But, but, but also, I think this is a point you made, that there might be something sort of psychological going on where, where people just generally have so, become so used to surviving on their own that, that they already don't see these connections. So there's a lot to work on. And that, that is slightly worrying because usually when we think of a strong and resilient state, we mean one where that sense of interdependence is strong. Well, it's very interesting what you're saying that you use the term behavior. So what you mean is that the kind of uh, usual practices of behavior is something that differentiates Ukrainians or unites Ukrainians rather than ideas. So Ukrainians can believe in different ideas. They can be different in their religions. They can have different conceptions of, of the past, of the memory, of political memory. But you say what, what the united is, is this kind of a behavior. What kind of behavior? Is it a protest behavior? Is it kind of a, this non-acceptance non of authoritarianism? 
is it mistrust to any government? And in this in this sense, it is probably not very good. Well, the, 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 those I would say are kind of more attitudes, you know, and values. And there's certain both of those I think I think come through um, with all their positive and negative effects, and they're probably deeply interrelated. The 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 you know the revolutionary fervor and the uh, <laughs> and and you know. Uh, and the and the total mistrust of institutions. Um, so, so that, but that, what, what I mean, behavior, I mean something much more everyday and much more kind of unconscious, which is just like you know how you talk to other people and 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 how you communicate with them and how you react to them and you know, and and well, I'll give you an example, a simpler one. So, so in Britain, we found that uh, people in focus groups. Um, when you know divided by Brexit versus Remain, uh, so attitudes to the EU, they can they can get very passionate and almost violent. Um, people really cling on to these identities, and certainly did in the aftermath of the of the vote. While in Ukraine, you take a something like you know decommunization, which is very controversial, but people are actually very live and let live. Uh, or you ask questions about you know they say look you know you know. Uh, if it's important for them to have that street name, let them keep it, you know. Or or take something like language laws, um, you know, or asking questions about, you know, what language should TV programs be in? And even Russian speakers, you know, quite hard Russian speakers, were like, oh, you know, it should really be in Ukrainian, you know, we live in Ukraine, but it would be good to have Russian subtitles or something. So, so people were incredibly sort of, you know, they, they were actually very ready to understand the priorities of others and and they were very ready to compromise. And I suppose in some ways that also ref- reflects uh, a sort of perfigism sometimes, you know, just don't care, uh, which isn't always positive. But overall, there's a, there's a live and let live philosophy and not a lot of fanaticism. Um, and that's something we've always found, to be honest. Um, and... And I think that's very interesting. That could, I wonder how that could be sort of brought out more. It's interesting indeed because if we look at social networks uh, and the way how people communicate on Facebook or some other social networks, well, we find probably the same level of aggression as everywhere. But what you're saying is that this kind of aggressivity of social networks, the hate speech, etc., is not a real state of affairs of Ukrainian society, which in real life is much more tolerant to each other. But there is another uh, thing that I think is one of the, you know, the debates in the Ukrainian society, especially after Zelensky became president two years ago, is this criticism in in the more radical, patriotic or pro-Western groups, like more fans of previous president, Mr. Poroshenko, this mem, kakaya uh, raznitsa, meaning that Zelensky and his supporters are diminishing the important, you know, markers, political, geopolitical identity markers that were important for this Ukrainian mobilization. So uh, what is this, you know, the, the difference between this good term tolerance and the bad term, which would be indifference, that you named pofigism, which we can translate probably as indifference. So you try, you try to see uh, some positive uh, 
implications of something that is not very positively perceived by some parts of the Ukrainian society. So do you think that really this tolerance or even indifference can be a, a, a positive thing for Ukrainian society? I mean, it's, 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 it is interesting. It's a thin line. It would be great to do a study just based on that, just really trying to think about, you know, what is that scale? And we'd find it's a scale. Um, in, in a certain way, I, I always found that, that Ukraine was sort of a Ukrainian passivity, which is probably seen as a negative by the people you just mentioned, uh, sort of saved Ukraine a little bit in 14 because um, it meant it was impossible to stir the country into civil war because, you know, I remember being in Kharkov in those days and there were sort of radicals and, and you know, Russian operatives trying to push the, the city into civil war and, and people in Kharkov were like, no, we can't be bothered with this. And Odessa as well. You know, so so I, th I think that kind of indifference, which is so frustrating if you're trying to do reforms or something, may have even saved Ukraine at that point. Um, a little bit of, you know, people were just too passive to to really get pulled into Yugoslav-style scenarios. Um, so 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 you know, even even perfugism and indifference can have its positive aspects occasionally, but obviously, usually we're talking about something negative. Um, I think it's a thin line. I think it's a thin it's a thin line. It would be great to explore where tolerance tips into indifference, and I wonder whether you know whether that depends on not just the value, not the abstract value, but also the kind of context that you put people into sort of reforms you're trying to do. So I, I don't know, the Zelensky one, I'm not close enough to the reform process, but the question I would ask would be, okay, is that indifference meaning reforms are falling apart or is actually something happening, you know? So maybe indifference becomes tolerance once you're doing something together. So <laughs> I don't know if these are just abstract values. There have to be other things happening. And what was the criticism one heard of the Poroshenko period, and again, I'm just talking secondhand here, is that the pasyanarnists and the passion were kind of uh, pushed to the fore as a replacement for real reforms. So instead of really doing the deep reforms that you need, you just stoke a lot of cultural markers, which become an ersatz for actual politics. So, you know, I think the ideal that we want is, 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 and in, in all these different algorithms, the ideal that we want is real reforms, which make the make ensure that the indifference always remains tolerance and we are moving forwards. That's very, very interesting. But uh, the other interpretation could be, and that what I, I find in these discussions, online or offline, so people who who are really involved into something important, especially which is related to the front line, to the war, like veterans, volunteers, etc. Well, they can be pretty intolerant, of course, because, I mean, they... They lost something important. They they could have lost, you know, their friends, their relatives, parts of their bodies, whatever, and their health. And um, it's it's really interesting how in this very hot situation in Ukraine, very difficult, in which very many people have very difficult lives and very difficult destinies, you have, you know, indeed this probably balance, you need to find a true balance between 
real convictions and faith and and tolerance you know because yeah it's it's easy to say that you 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 can be tolerant when you believe in something very strong but when this faith in something involves sacrifices well for some people it's very difficult of course to 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 be tolerant to some other people well, uh, this, let this this is where the lack of interdependence is really alarming i remember being in doing focus groups, not for this project, for a previous one in Odessa. And people would recognize that Russia was at fault for the war, Russia was the invader, there was no question about that. But they didn't feel it was their war. Now that's what I, that's alarming, because if there's, Benedict Anderson actually starts his book about imagined communities with the idea of the unknown soldier. You know, you've never met this soldier, you don't know who he is, but because you feel part of one organism, the unknown soldier takes on this the symbolism, so I would say, I would say that's that's exactly it. I mean, I, I don't know whether it's. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a veteran, but when I've talked to veterans, um, I remember talking to soldiers just on the train back from the front back to Kiev, uh, and they're, they're sort of telling me it's ridiculous. We get back to Kiev, and no one there wants to think about the war. Nobody wants to, you know, because of fear, because of lack of of a sense of interdependence. You know, we come home and nobody wants to think about the war or they think about it as a movie, but they don't want to be emotionally involved. So that is worrying, I would say. I think that is bad. And, and I don't know if it's about pasiadarnes, it's about that sense of feeling that you're part of one thing. Now that that has to change. I think if Ukraine is to become a, you know, keep on surviving and flourishing, I think that has to change. Uh, the usual, like... Uh a perspective through which many people looked at Ukraine, both inside and outside, was the perspective of a certain division. We can remember this metaphor of two Ukraines by Mykola Repchuk, although uh, it is much more complicated than, than people invested into this metaphor. And Mykola often explains what that he that his concept is not as simplistic as some people other other people think but we can also i mean remember you remember this huntington thesis in clash of civilizations who was saying that look ukraine is a kind of a, on this on this line between different civilizations between eastern christianity and western christianity and therefore the like the splitting of Ukraine, a kind of a civil war is inevitable. What Huntington, uh, however, didn't predict was precisely the war between Ukraine and Russia. It's it's uh, quite an interesting thing. Uh, but your report, uh, or our report, is saying that, look, Ukraine is much more united than we think, and all these metaphors and all these interpretations of divided Ukraine, split it in two halves, three halves, or having the potential civil war are outdated, a thing of the past. Do you think so? So I look at people like Huntington um, and his book, The Clash of Civilizations, really as... Um, feeding as a piece of storytelling that was very necessary for people as they try to construct new simplistic stereotypes to understand the world after the Cold War. So, you know, communism versus capitalism falls and there's an intellectual gap. People can't make sense of the world anymore. And and Huntington kind of helps fill that. I mean, he, he doesn't... 
or certainly in the book, he has no idea what, what civilization is. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's, 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 it's quite a tabloid piece of fun storytelling that he does. And, and he spent then a lot of time saying he'd been misunderstood. He was saying this, the, the, the civilizational construct is something that could be used by propaganda, was what he was trying to say. Not that this is a, a given. This is not a reality. This, he was trying to say that others will use these sort of constructs um, so he spent a lot of time kind of making excuses for himself when, when kind of he was sort of, you know, torn limb from limb by most people for his very fun, but, you know, very, very silly book. So I, 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 I mean, I, I see all these sort of bits of political science as pieces of storytelling that answer um, a chaos that people see and people can't deal with complexity. They can't deal with the complexity of what civilization really is, which is the opposite of what Huntington says it is. Um, civilization is always around the combination of different uh, currents. It's never about bubbles. So, um, uh, so people, people struggle with that. They struggle with complexity. Um, we know from lots of so, real social science that, that, that people will look for simplistic stereotypes in order to make sense of the world. And at the extreme, you have someone like Donald Trump who reduces life to a cartoon between bad liberals and little Marcos and crooked Hillary's, you know, the sort of life reduced to a children's comics. And then you have sophisticated ones like Huntington who are still playing the same sort of game. Um, so so I, I don't take any of that stuff seriously, but, but it, what, what is serious is that you know, in the chaos that we live in, in the kind of epistemological chaos that we live in, people do search for these simplified categories and sometimes they, they, they become a reality. Um, so, so we always have to understand, for them not to become a reality, we have to understand why people feel this chaos. Uh, and and it's, it's, this is a, a choice, this is a thing in flux. This is where media and culture play such a big role. Can we come to terms with the complexity and can we organize societies around, uh, not around these sort of idiotic binary constructs? Or, 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 or do we just collapse and then we just dissolve into thinking in terms of us, them, one Ukraine, two Ukraine, and ultimately Aryan, non-Aryan, Ubermensch, Untermensch, which is, of course, historically the great, the great epistemological construct um, of reducing things to simple binaries whose final logic can only ever be violence because it's such a lie. And in order to protect the lie, people will turn to violence. Let me ask a question about... <laughs> you got me on my favorite subject. <laughs> oh, great, great, fantastic. But let me come back to your report uh, and uh, ask a question about the occupied territories because... Uh, You've always, you've also made focus groups in occupied territories of Donbass. And, uh, you know, there is also what we see is the growing, uh, alienation of these lands, Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast, the occupied territories of Eastern Ukraine, alienation from Ukraine. And, you know, the, it's moving closer to Russia. We see, uh, lots of passports, the Russian passports distributed on this land, so churning these people who are Ukrainian citizens gradually into Russian citizens. 
But what we learned from the focus groups that we've done uh, on these territories, what we can say about the feelings, the values, emotions of these people? So, look, doing social research in the occupied territories is hard for obvious reasons. You can't talk directly about politics for obvious reasons. Um, but what we found consistently was that people people are in a, they're, they're in this kind of hole. They're in a vacuum. They feel betrayed by everyone. Their identity is very fluid. It was very interesting. They would, they would move within the conversation, talking about us as in DNR, us as in Ukraine when it came to sports sometimes, it's us as in Russia. It was moving around. It was very interesting. It was very liquid. Uh, certainly hadn't solidified. Um, and probably the weakest one of all was sort of like, you know, you know the DNR sort of identity. Um, and... Um, um, uh, and there was a nostalgia for the pre-2014 life. Um, well, not because of patriotism to Ukraine, but because of just a sense of normality. Normality had disappeared. And, and people saw the war as purely negative. And, and that was interesting. So, so we didn't find this kind of um, solid new identity that had been built. And these, again, these strong kind of passions. Um, it would be very interesting. We were doing stuff with younger people and were slightly older. It would be very interesting to talk to um, teenagers. Now, that would be, we didn't talk to them. Has the process of indoctrination in schools, which is happening very actively, has that now created a much firmer sense of either DNR or, or even Russian identity? It's the old question that you had with the Nazis, you know, the people who'd been through the Hitler Jugend were the ones who had, uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, seems to be much more passionate Nazis. You know, with others it was negotiable. <laughs> but, you know, so, so I think with DNR and, the, and LNR, with the Occupied Territories, I, I'd love to know more about that generation. But the generation we talked to, which is people with a clear memory of life before 2014, I mean, whichever way their identity leaned, and as I say, it was very liquid and very fluid, for all of them, you know, they were nostalgic for pre-2014. Right. Maybe my last question uh, is about international politics. So do you have the feeling from this from this study that Ukrainians understand the whole, you know, complexity of international interdependence? Because I have an, a feeling as a Ukrainian, Ukrainian citizen that... Um, there is a kind of this perception of Ukraine as, as, as an island isolated from the rest of the world and a kind of tendency to see the world very simplistically. Maybe it's also a trend everywhere else in the world, but maybe something surprised you in the Ukrainian case. It didn't surprise me, but, but listen, I think this is your insight and not mine, was that I think that you pointed out actually that this was very much related to to people's immediate lives. They don't see themselves interconnected at the level of the village, the town, the country, let alone the whole world. It's just a very, it's just, you know, Ukrainian conditions have produced um, quite, you know, atomized society. We hear this all the time from so many studies. And, and that is then translated to the whole world. You know, I survive by myself, maybe with me and my divor or my few friends. Um, and in the big world, countries survive on their own. So, so I think, I think you know, it's almost as if the, the, the bigger picture comes from the micro picture. 
So, look, all this can change. All this is, is really changeable. Not, not quickly. It'll take time. But all this can change. I don't think it changes with simply with explaining to people how, I don't know, you know, whatever, international trade works. I think it comes from, you know, a, a different social arrangement where interdependence becomes more of a factor of people's lives. Um, so, yes, it's simplistic, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there is a tendency, not from this project, we've seen in many other projects, towards a sort of conspiratorial mindset from full-on conspiratorial thinking through to just a conspiratorial mindset where, you know, the world is perceived basically like the Ukraine of the 1990s of just like big bad people fighting it out mercilessly and you just have to survive. So, so, so people definitely translate uh, their personal experiences onto their worldviews. Yeah, I would fully agree with you. You know, it seems to me that we are facing kind of this new atomism, new atomization of the worldviews, which is also kind of a reaction maybe to the Soviet times. And it's also an interesting outcome of the independence because it's like we moved to the extreme during Soviet times. People were thinking in terms of big collective bodies, you know, big, big, not even states, but systems. And, su and suddenly they realized that they are individuals, very atomized individuals, not, not very much needed by somebody else. And they projected to the, to the international uh, um, arena as well. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. Let me remind to our readers that, uh, to our listeners, that we talked about Ukraine's independence viewed from outside and inside, and in particular about the report Ukraine at 30 from independence to interdependence, what unites Ukrainians and what divides Ukrainians after 30 years of independence. This report was led by Arena Think Tank and Peter Pomerantsev and uh, uh, with the support of the USAD. And uh, indeed, it's, it's a very, very good starting point, maybe, to understand the, the nuances of the Ukrainian society, the details of the Ukrainian society, of this collective psychology. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Follow our podcast on SoundCloud, Google and Apple. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay with us.